The medical information communicated in this podcast is of a general educational nature. If you are feeling unwell, please seek the attention of a medical practitioner. Any advertisements promoted throughout the podcast are not endorsed by the presenter or any of the guests interviewed. Hi there, welcome to MediTalk, a medical podcast talking all things medical in a way that you can understand. You're with Danae. If you would have told me in January of this year that by March, people all around the world would be affected by a virus from a bat, whereby hundreds of thousands of lives would be lost and people's livelihoods taken away from them, and life as we know it would be significantly changed, I just wouldn't have believed you. Well, today on MediTalk, I speak with Dr. Astrid Arellano, an infectious disease specialist at St. John of God Hospital in Subiaco, who will help us make sense of it all and provide us with some much needed practical advice and share her knowledge on what we now know as COVID-19. What is the coronavirus? So coronaviruses are a group of viruses Mm -hmm. and the current coronavirus that's circulating in Australia, which gives rise to COVID-19 infection or disease, is a novel one. And that means that it's a new virus that we've not encountered before. So nobody before this virus came along um, had ever had infection with it, which is why it's um, because that's why we're vulnerable. Um, but coronavirus, the actual name of the virus is SARS-CoV-19. That's the actual name. But COVID-19, which is what we use, is is the name of the disease. So we'd had SARS, but not this form of SARS. That's right. So SARS and the current virus that's circulating are distantly related. They're not actually very close um, viruses at all. We The current virus is much more uh, closely related to bat viruses. Mm-hmm. Um, and we think that the current virus mutated from a bat virus, which then is causing infection in humans. And that happened in China. So what are the symptoms of COVID-19? So for a lot of people, it's symptoms like uh, the flu. So the most discerning symptom is probably a fever. And after that, a dry cough. Uh, they're the main two. So it's not so much a sore throat or a runny nose, um, but as I said, fever and a cough, and it tends to be dry. And then there are a multitude of other symptoms that also people have, which are p- potentially part of it, such as um, aches and pains, diarrhea. Some people can get a sore tummy, um, but all of those need to be put in context with Mm. um, exposure. So if you've actually been in contact with someone with COVID-19 or if you've travelled in the last two weeks um, and you have a fever and a cough, then that becomes uh, a possible case. And then would you be having to suffer, for for example, the fever for a period of time, so a few days or consistently before someone would say, actually, this is a fever that perhaps we should put into context? So, yes. Um, I mean, a a single fever is probably not relevant, but Mm. if you have a fever with a dry cough that is persistent, uh, we know that um, it takes approximately three days for the symptoms to start. So if you happen to be at a gathering and then develop the symptoms and they're persistent for, let's say, 48 hours, 
I would think that that is a reasonable length of time. And then should we be tested if we have no symptoms then? That's a good question. So the current test that we have is a throat swab. And for the throat swab to be um, reliable, you need to have viruses replicating uh, in the back of the throat, meaning you need to have live virus present. And before you have symptoms, we know that that doesn't happen in a lot of people. So in other words, during the incubation period when you don't have many symptoms or no symptoms, the virus is still not present in large enough numbers for us to detect it with the test we have available. So the throat swab test can be negative when you have no symptoms. And so you can get a false sense of security, I guess, and it's not reliable. So the best time to have the test is once you've actually had symptoms because then we have a chance of picking this up. And the truth is that uh, the COVID clinics are not just doing COVID-19 testing, they're actually testing for other viruses as well. So that if you happen to have these symptoms but your illness is not due to COVID-19, then maybe it's influenza or maybe it's rhinovirus, one of the other uh, viruses. And when are you more um, likely to spread the disease or the virus? So that is directly correlated with how much virus um, is present. So early on, before you're asymptomatic or before you are symptomatic, you will not have a lot of virus to cough or to spread around. But once you have symptoms, then you have a lot more virus and therefore it's more likely to spread. But Having said that, you can spread the virus within 24 hours of actually developing symptoms. Okay. So it is unfortunate, I guess, and it's a feature of viral diseases in general, that often before you have your first symptom, you have already been infectious and pass it on to other people. And then why should you not be tested then if you've got a sore throat or a runny nose? Because I know a lot of people are probably, that's, you know, they start getting those symptoms and they think, I really want to be tested. Should they or should they not? So um, the crucial thing is that those symptoms can be present in lots of other viral infections. So the common cold, the flu, there are lots of other uh, viral infections that gives you uh, a runny nose and a sore throat. So if those symptoms are in conjunction with a dry cough and a fever and you've had contact with someone who has confirmed COVID-19 and you've travelled somewhere in the last two weeks, then that fits the criteria. And the reason we have to use criteria for testing and not everybody gets a test is that if you are testing everyone, mm. then we may not actually have enough tests for all the people that do fit the criteria. And it's just an unfortunate reality that we have problems. Um, we, I'm using the royal we. Yeah, the global. The global, the city of Perth and, and actually WA and worldwide, there is a shortage of reagents that are required to do this test. And so you need to apply an algorithm to testing the most likely people because otherwise we may be doing a lot of tests that are going to be negative. And in fact, a large majority of tests being done in Perth are negative. 
because we don't have a lot of community transmission. Which is a good thing. Which is a good thing. So we are not justified, I guess, right at the moment, and this may change, but right at the moment we're not justified in testing everybody that has a runny nose and a sore throat unless they fulfil the criteria. And the criteria changes, so it may be that this will be different. And so a more targeted approach is better at this stage. That's right. And then how long do you really think, I suppose this is a question that is on the back of everyone's mind because a lot of us are now working from home and, you know, our lives have changed significantly. How long in all truth do you think this could go on for? So that's a a very um, good question and it's a difficult question to answer in a short form. Mm. So you'll have to bear with me. Yeah, of course. Um, The truth is that the way this virus is behaving or what a pandemic means is what I referred to before. It's a virus we've never encountered before. Therefore, we're all susceptible. What that means is that probably at least half of the population of Perth at some point or another will get this infection. Now, that's probably conservative. It may be a bit more than that. It may be a bit less than that. And it all depends on how the virus um, spreads through the community. And the way viruses spread is through droplets. So in other words, when people cough and sneeze, the virus is in the environment. And if you are within a metre of that person, then you will, um, I guess, be exposed. And the second way the virus um, is spread is through fomites, which is the virus particles land on surfaces. And those surfaces can be any surface. Um, And if you touch that surface and then touch your mouth or your nose or your eyes, then you again are exposed to the virus. So to come back to how long is this going to go on for? Well, it really correlates with how much transmission there will be. So if we stay socially distancing um, with people staying mainly home, children not going to school, all the measures that have been put in place, we will hopefully see a slowdown in the spread of this infection. And there are some early um, signs that that may be the case. In fact, in the last week, we have probably dropped the doubling time of this infection from four to, from three, sorry, to about four days. That means that we may be, in, in those common terms, flattening the curve, maybe. And I think they've been using a lot that terminology and people might not actually understand what does that mean, flattening the curve? So I think we probably should come back to that because it's relevant to answering this question. Mm. But in simple terms, how long is this going to go on for? It will go on for until we're immune. Mm. And the only way of being immune to coronavirus or COVID-19 is by either getting the infection and recovering or by waiting until there's a vaccine. If we have the lockdown or, you know, staying at home, which is what we're trying to do, um, then we will have a trickle of infections in the community over time. But as soon as we relax those measures, there will be blips again. And we have the risk of then the infection becoming rampant again. Mm. So it will probably go on for a long time, maybe 12 to 18 months 
until we have a vaccine or until enough of the community has been infected and has gotten over it, and therefore we then have immunity. But you need about 80% of people being immune before that will be the case and we can relax. Yeah. And then how is it possible to build your immunity to COVID-19? So um, by having the infection. So if you have the infection, we now know that if you recover, you're immune. And there is little evidence, so far at least, that this virus will mutate. So hopefully once you've had the infection, you're immune. And the second way is by having a vaccine. And the vaccine, as I mentioned before, may not be available for a good year. I think the scary reality is that we're all living with is if you were to get it, are you going to be one of those lucky ones that can fight it? Or are you seeing these pictures of people on television on ventilators and, you know, some people say, oh, I've got a good immunity, I'm fit, I'm healthy. Mm. But, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's quite um, difficult when you're, you don't have an experience or the knowledge of you and you are watching these pictures on the television and you think, oh, gosh, I hope it doesn't happen to me. So you're doing everything by the book to make sure you don't get infected. So the comment I'd make about that is that we know from studies elsewhere that 80% of the population or 80% of people who get this infection actually do fine. They oh, do not become unwell and require a ventilator. Um, the people who are more susceptible and are at greater risk for developing severe disease tend to have multiple medical problems. And unfortunately, it, it happens to correlate with people who are older. Um, and so we know that um, the very young children actually sometimes have very little in the way of symptoms, recover very quickly, and they tend not to become very unwell at all. Uh, it seems to be the same uh, in pregnancy. There doesn't seem to be a significant increased risk just because you're pregnant, which is unlike influenza. Influenza can actually be quite a severe disease in pregnancy. That doesn't seem to be the case with this infection. So there are aspects of this infection that should hopefully reassure people that it is not a death sentence and not everybody who gets COVID-19 requires a ventilator. Yes, because I think we're seeing extremes, yes. you know, um, on That's, television and that can be difficult to then, to then understand it. It's good TV. <laughs> yeah, it's unfortunate. And then, but with children though, and they've got grandparents, can they be good transmitters of, of the virus though? And that's why it's good to sort of, um, ensure that children keep their distance from their grandparents during this time. So look, there is a little bit of, um, differences of opinion mm. with regards to this. Um, there are some, there is some evidence that suggests that children are not particularly good at transmitting it. Um, what I would say though is that we need to be, we need to use common sense. Mm. We, we need to be conscious of how the virus is transmitted. And I keep going back to the social distancing. So if you are away from one and a half, two meters from somebody, it's unlikely that you will actually give it to someone, even if you are coughing or sneezing. If you are coughing or sneezing, you cover your cough. You cough into your elbow, you cough into a tissue. And if you happen to be 
in you know an environment where you are touching surfaces, then you just need to clean those surfaces and wash your hands. So my message to people um, with families in general is that you need to discuss this with your family and come to an arrangement that works for you. Mm. And what that means is that if you have grandparents that are dear to you that you want to visit, you put certain things in place. You do it outdoors in a park. You don't share the food necessarily or you make sure that if you do, you have washed your hands before you've prepared it. And then the same with the children. They understand they need to wash their hands and perhaps really, really close contact like hugging and, you know, being all over your grandparent is not such a great idea. But again, if you're well and, you know, we're staying home, we're not going anywhere. So once you've actually passed that two-week mark, which is the, I guess, most extreme contact, um, sorry, incubation period mm. of this virus, the chances of you actually having it is very small. And we don't have a lot of community transmission. So even the short trips to the shops or to the post office is means that it's unlikely you will actually encounter it. So making decisions around your own family need to be made between the people within that household. And it may be that for some families, it's not practical to not see anyone, to not see the grandparents, to not deliver shopping to them. Yes, of course. So um, I think it's it's those simple principles about washing hands and um, keeping your distance that are still the most important. Hmm. And then when do you think a vaccine might become available? Um, so my reading of the uh, literature suggests 12 to 18 months and there are various different uh, forms of vaccines being developed. There's some that are being worked on here in Australia. And I understand from my start, from my reading that animal trials are beginning. So usually there's a, first of all, they have to find, a, uh, find the virus. Secondly, work out what part of the virus we can use for vaccine development. Then comes the animal studies. And then after that, human trials. So I think a vaccine being fully available to vaccinate all of Australians will probably not be realistic in the next 12 months. What about antivirals being used and being used in Perth? So this is a, a good question also. And the message here is that there is no um, known treatment for this infection. The treatment is supportive, which means that we control temperature by using Panadol. Um, we give fluids to people who have um, who are dehydrated and are not eating because they don't feel well. Um, and where required, you are in hospital receiving treatment for secondary bacterial infections. And then if you're critically unwell, then obviously intensive care. Um, but antiviral medicines for this viral virus, we don't have any at this point in time. There have been many, many molecules um, tested in the laboratory and there are lots of things in development, uh, but nothing has been proven to be effective. Um, so in Australia, there are a number of trials that um, several hospitals, including um, quite a few of the public hospitals in Perth and um, St John of Godsubiaco as well, 
um, going to participate in those trials. And what that means is that there are some experimental treatments that may have some effect, uh, but we don't know if that is actually going to be the case when you go through the trial period. So there are trials in China that are informing the trials we are setting up in Australia. And if a certain criteria is met and you are able to consent to be part of the trial, then some of these medications um, are likely to be used, um, but not as a proven treatment. So it will um, not be available for everybody because not everybody will fit um, the trial criteria or wish to actually have an experimental treatment. And then when we are hearing that people are being treated with COVID-19, it's more supportive. So when we're hearing that language on reports, it's not a new drug that's suddenly being no. used. It's it's the fact they're being provided supportive treatments to help them the, their own immunity get through the symptoms that they're feeling. Yes, it's like any other cold, I suppose. We don't have any treatments for the cold. There are some treatments for influenza, but they don't really work in this coronavirus. Um, so the mainstay of treatment is supportive. Okay. And that's proven to be quite effective in people that are um, being diagnosed with mild to moderate COVID-19? Right. yes. Okay. Yes. And then how would you protect yourself then when you go shopping? Because we've talked about it, um, the virus can live on surfaces. Yes. So say if we go to the fruit and veggie market and we're touching the vegetables as we normally would, is that something we should be worried about? Or I heard actually last night, Amazon, there was someone on Amazon that's been um, diagnosed with COVID-19 and now there's this worry, what happens because we're all getting everything delivered? Yes. So I go back to the really basic principles that, first of all, we don't have a lot of community transmission in Perth and it may be worth notice or noticing that we have about 300 cases uh, by the time, um, you know, this podcast is aired, it mm. may be a few more than that. But the truth is that 80 or 85% of those cases have been related to overseas travel or interstate travel or people who've been on cruise ships. So the community transmission in Perth is still extremely low. Some people are concerned that uh, we're not testing enough and therefore we don't know about community transmission. But the truth is that if you had a lot of community transmission, that would be seen in the COVID clinics. We would know about it. There are certainly some little pockets that the health department are aware of and there's more intensive treatment, uh, testing, sorry, going on in those areas. But community transmission is low. So what that means is that any single trip to the shops, the likelihood of you touching a piece of fruit or um, you know an item in the supermarket that has been touched by somebody else who had COVID-19 infection is really, really, really low. Okay. So I see a lot of people wearing masks on the street and I see a lot of people wearing gloves. And I'll come back to that in a moment. But what I really want people to understand is that the community transmission is low so the likelihood of you coming in contact with someone or your produce being infected mm. and therefore it being a risk to you is extremely low. Going back to the masks, 
Um, so masks are um, uh, a protective piece of equipment that is used in certain situations and it protects the person who is wearing it from actually catching something, but it also protects the person that you're interviewing if you happen to have something you don't want to give it to the other person. Now, there are many, many different types of masks and many, many different types of faces and a mask needs to be fitted to the person who's wearing it. There are different grades of masks and it also depends on how long you've been wearing them for. So beyond a certain number of hours, the mask is no longer effective. So to put all of that into context, where you have very low community transmission and you're wearing an item that you're not used to wearing, that may not be suited to your face and that may not be, um, you know, doing anything, I think is actually really, really unlikely to be helpful. And what I'm more concerned about is that the times that I've seen people wearing masks, they are constantly touching their face because wearing a mask is really uncomfortable. Mm. And as soon as you put a mask on, your nose is itchy and you need to scratch it. <laughs> and so people touch their faces and fiddle with the mask and the chance of then contaminating yourself when you're wearing it or when you're taking it off is actually high, quite high. So I think I see more problems with wearing a mask um, just for general, you know, your shopping trip. Um, and I don't think that I, I don't think that's recommended. And in fact, if you look at the World Health Organization, yeah. CDC and our health department, they really do not recommend it. Now, I'm not saying that perhaps in an individual circumstance where you're very immunosuppressed and you're, you know, going to go and see your specialist and you have to walk through a hospital, maybe that scenario is different and that would have to be discussed on an individual basis with your specialist. But for the general public, I don't think masks are warranted. And, and probably it goes back to making sure you're at a decent distance away from That's the other right. person. I think sometimes what worries me is that if people wear a mask and then they think, oh, well, I can be a bit closer to that person, or they might um, just naturally subconsciously be closer to them when they're talking, whereas if we really do keep that social distance, that's probably most important. It is. And I think the gloves are the same thing. So um, the masks obviously stop the droplet spread, um, but surfaces tend to be, um, you know, another, another source for this virus. And if you wear gloves and we do wear them in hospital, you wear them for a particular purpose. And even when you're doing a, a procedure with gloves, you can easily contaminate them. So if you're out and about wearing gloves and you're touching uh, the checkout and then you touch food and then you touch your car, those gloves are just a source of spreading whatever it is that you've touched. Yeah. Rather than being protective in any way and if you take the gloves off, you still have to wash your hands. So we go back to those basic things about hand washing, making sure that you wash your hands before food. Uh, if you've been to the shops, wash your hands. And the same, if you keep your distance, then you're not at risk of catching COVID-19. And then sanitizer is getting more difficult to get mm. people's hands on, literally, because it's everyone wants it. And it's being, um, I think, well promoted. Yes. Um, what's your thoughts? Should people worry 
if they are washing their hands properly and following the WHO guidelines and, and good guidelines on hand washing, um, should they then worry if they're not getting their hands on some hand sanitizer? If they're keeping up with good hand washing and drying, is that as good as hand, hand sanitizer or better? Yes, absolutely. So hand sanitizer came about as a quick an easy way of uh, washing your hands, in inverted commas, between patient contact because um, it's easy, it dries, you just use it, it's 70% alcohol based and so what you do is it, you come out of the patient's room, you use the hand sanitizer, it evaporates and you know that you're clean and you can get on with seeing the next patient. That was where the hand sanitizers were developed and of course then it became a common item that you could buy in chemists. Mm. But hand washing with soap and water for 20 seconds, provided you make sure that you um, wash around your rings, wash around the thumbs and the wrist area, which is what we often forget, and you sing a song for 20 seconds, and then you rinse, is actually as good as the hand sanitizer. So don't worry if you can't get your hands don't on some of them. Don't worry if you can't get it. And I think some people may not realise that the sanitizer sometimes that people are managing to get is maybe a low percentage of alcohol. Yes, that's the other issue, that there are lots of different types. Um, so hand sanitizers that have at least 70% alcohol in them is, is the standard that is required. Um, but if you can't get hold of it, seriously, just soap and water is absolutely fine. And then what about then the shopping that's being delivered to our door? So we've talked about going to the shops to to um, get our groceries that we're still allowed to do. Um, what about it being delivered? Should we be worrying about that? So I think that Delivery of shopping is a great option for uh, people who are isolating at home, especially the elderly. And a single home delivery uh, from somebody who is well and who's doing the socially responsible thing of not going to work if you're unwell, then I think it's absolutely safe. Um, and I go back to the fact we don't have a lot of community transmission or any at all. And um, the items in the shopping themselves are unlikely to be contaminated. Um, fresh fruit and vegetables, yes, they need to be washed, they need to be rinsed, and you should, you know, especially leafy greens, they should be washed anyway before eating. But you don't need to wash the cans and the um, yes. bags of pasta and okay. everything else that's being delivered. There is really no evidence that that we have such significant transmission of COVID-19 in the community that that you're likely to encounter that with one single shop uh, okay. that's been delivered. And then what about, um, I've heard that different surfaces, the virus can last longer than others. So if you touch, um, someone was telling me, touch brass, it's different than touching wood. If you touch paper versus cardboard. Can you clarify that for us? Yes, so the hard surfaces, so things like metal, plastic, wood that's been laminated, tends to last a lot longer, um, up to nine days in some uh, studies. Um, soft furnishings and um, paper bags tend to be a bit less, uh, probably in the order of three to four days. And then um, 
obviously on our hands, it's it, the virus doesn't really survive for very long, but it's still significant enough that you should be washing your hands lots of times every day. I think it's less relevant what surfaces the virus lives on mm. more than others, provided we're just being careful. And, and I don't think people need to be obsessive about cleaning. I think that we we may be overdoing it in some circumstances, but just being conscious that if you have been out, you wash your hands before food, wash your hands. Um, and if you've been uh, to a doctor's surgery, I mean, there's hand sanitizers everywhere. Mm. Um, if you bring a shopping home, uh, unpack it, and then wash your hands and wash your clean your benches so that when you're preparing food on that surface, it, it you know it hasn't been contaminated. Uh, with whatever you put on it from your shop. And would there be enough molecules on um, a, a, an item or on a surface that could infect you? In theory, yes. Mm. But again, you would have to touch the surface within the time frame that the virus was on it and then touch your nose or touch your eyes. <laughs> So it's so a very low probability. It's low probability where we have low community transmission and the chances of a surface being colonised and then you touch it and then you put your fingers in your nose. Yeah. It's low risk. So when we're seeing the rates of China and I, I suppose now the US, unfortunately, um, when we're seeing these high rates of infection, was it mainly because it went, it got out to the community? Yes, so it wasn't because they had those really good controls very early. I think there are lots of reasons why um, it's it's gotten out of hand in certain parts of the world, and it's it's a multitude of things. It has to do with probably less. Uh, well, there's no universal healthcare in the US, for example. So testing has been an issue. There's been lots of cases where people can't afford to have the test. Um, there haven't been directives about staying home. And so there has been significant community transmission. And going back to, this actually leads us nicely into the flattening of the curve yeah. thing that we were mentioning before. before. yeah. So there's a concept in a pandemic where the virus um, gets into the community and starts to spread from person to person. We know that this particular virus, if you have an infection, you will infect, on average, two and a half other people. So, and then each one of those two other two and a half other people infect two and a half other people, and so on. And so we know that from a single contact, um, you can have you know hundreds, if not thousands, of people infected. Now, over time, we know that the average doubling time. So, in other words, if you have say two people infected in three days' time, you will have four. In three days' time, you'll have eight, and so on. That's called the doubling time. And if you continue at that rate without doing anything about it, you have an exponential rise and these enormous peaks. So that after a period of time, you will have uncontrolled transmission in the community and thousands upon thousands of cases of coronavirus infection. And that's what's happened in Italy and in certain parts of the US, we're getting to that peak where there's been absolutely no control. Now, what's happened in Australia, and I'm hoping that this will be sustained, is that we are starting to see in certain parts of Australia, including WA, 
a reduction in that doubling time. So in other words, it's no longer uh, three days, it's getting more like four days. And even so, we're not getting doubling of the numbers. We're actually getting numbers still coming through every day, but it's less and less. So instead of the curve being a complete exponential steep rise, it's starting to look more like a linear relationship. And it's a mathematical concept, it's hard to explain without showing it, but it, what it means is that we're getting control of the transmission. And I think now that we don't have interstate travel and we don't have overseas travel, within a fortnight, because the majority have been related to those two, within a fortnight we should actually see very few cases. And maybe that's not going to happen because people are not staying home like they should or perhaps they're not keeping to the social distancing. But if we continue doing what we're doing and we're conscientious about it, we may have a chance to reduce the numbers enough so that if you do get sick, we can manage that in hospitals mm. and we can manage that in the community. If we have a situation where we have complete uncontrolled transmission, we will have too many people who get sick at the same time to be able to look after them. Yeah, and that's having enough literal beds in ICUs and, and right. the machines required. Is that what you mean? Yes. So um, if, we, if we look at some of the um, information that's coming through from Italy, for example, yes. the, the sad reality there is that they have a health system that obviously copes with a certain amount of uh, sick people, but they haven't been able to cope with the hundreds upon hundreds mm. of sick people with COVID-19. And so we need to have a controlled situation in Australia where we can manage um, how many people get sick because we, we don't have an unlimited amount of hospital beds or ventilators. And no one does. Do no one does. In the no. world. So. so I think what we're doing seems to be, I mean, working. we can't be complacent, but it does seem to be showing early signs of, of working. And I think we're just going to have to get used to the fact that we may well need to do this for a very long time and that perhaps we will do it for a few weeks and then we may relax things a little. And I suspect that when we do that, we will see another rise in cases of COVID-19. And then we may need to go back to, you know, just staying home again um, in order for this to manage, it. to manage it over time. And then what about the testing criteria? So we'll just clarify that um, again. So the people being currently tested in West Australia? So the current testing criteria, and this changes, and it has mm. been um, expanded a little in the last few days, um, it's still... Um, refers to having a fever and respiratory symptoms, like we mentioned before, being out of breath, having a cough, and having overseas travel in the last 14 days, or close contact with somebody who is a confirmed COVID-19 case. That's the case definition in general terms. There have been other exceptions added, so that if you um, work in or live in an aged care facility, in rural and remote Aboriginal communities, if you're in a detention centre or a correctional facility, um, healthcare workers, WA police, uh, and or if you've come from a cruise ship, 
we know that in those circumstances there there are higher risk and therefore those people if they present with the right symptoms are also being tested even if you haven't been overseas or interstate so of the people tested i suppose where people are worried if we're not testing in the community then how will we know you know about community transmission so the truth about that is that um we see we will see it in the numbers so I know that the COVID clinics are being quite strict and I know general practitioners are not testing at the moment, but of the cases that we have that are positive, only a few have been related to not being overseas, not being interstate. And if we had significant community transmission, we would have people who would present at some point, either to the doctors or to the hospitals with the, with the symptoms that we've discussed. And particularly in hospitals. There is now the ability for a clinician, a doctor who sees somebody who doesn't fit the criteria we discussed, they are able to order the test if they're suspicious that mm. this is not, um, you know, a case of some other respiratory illness. So I think we're not seeing that scenario. We're not seeing many people who are presenting to hospitals who are not related to another COVID case and who haven't been overseas that actually test positive. We've only seen a very small handful of those. And is that the place of tracing? You know, is that why tracing is very important? Right. They'll test and then they'll trace that person back. That's right. And there are actually useful um, um there's useful information on the health department website, not so much in WA, but in places like New South Wales, where there's been a lot of cases from flights that have returned from overseas, that information is available. So that if you have been on an international flight or an interstate flight where there have been other cases, they're publishing that information. They're publishing what flights, uh, what seats people were seated in, so that if you happen to be on the same flight, you can actually present for testing. And they're keen on people who have symptoms in the right circumstances to actually come forward. Um, but again, I go back to thinking that if we have very low community transmission as it is, and we've stopped traveling interstate and overseas, we will probably see uh, a drop. And well, that would be fantastic. Over time. Mm. And then what about should we get the flu shot? It's, you know, we're coming into that winter season and I suppose it's a very different year that we're having. Should we go and have it done or uh, do you think people will be worried or, you know, they don't want to get sick from the flu? Because that's often if you ask someone why they don't have the flu vax, they say, oh, I just get sick from when the I have the flu vax. Yeah, what's your thoughts? So the first thing to say is that obviously the flu vaccine is specific to influenza. And the influenza vaccine is not going to be effective to prevent COVID-19. Um, the current vaccination under the health department or under the government uh, schedule is for children, for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, for people over 65 and for pregnant women. And anybody else who has a chronic illness like heart disease or lung disease or diabetes are also um, within the schedule and so they get a free vaccine. Um, now, my personal opinion is that I think anybody who is able to afford the vaccine should have it. And the reason for that is that if we're heading into winter with two viral infections, we know that we can prevent one of them. 
we can prevent influenza. The vaccine is safe and effective. And unless you've had an allergic reaction to the vaccine in the past, I really can't see many reasons for not having it. So we would all like to have the COVID-19 vaccine. Yes. <laughs> we don't have it, but we do have the flu vaccine. So I think although it's not being recommended universally, I actually think it makes a lot of sense to have the flu vaccine if you are able to afford it. And um, large proportions of the community will qualify anyway. But even if you don't, um, I think you should have it. Yeah. And then in terms of, I suppose it's a good opportunity to um, address some myths and get some clarity. You know, some people might say, oh, I've got great immunity. I wouldn't get COVID-19. What's your thoughts on people that it's all about their own personal immunity? They go to a naturopath, like, you know, they're taking all these things for their immunity. What part does our own immunity have to do to fight COVID-19 if we were to get it? So I think if you are healthy and don't have any other medical problems and you happen to get COVID-19, the chances are you won't get very sick. However, none of us are immune to it. So if you have a decent exposure, you will get it. And that's just the way this virus is, is uh, functioning. Um, so... Having a great immunity means that perhaps um, you will get over it quicker. You won't have so many symptoms. Uh, you probably won't uh, need a hospital uh, bed. But um, I don't think we're immune in the sense of if even if you are exposed that you will not get it. The chances are um, with this infection, if you are exposed, you will get an illness of some kind or another. And then can you get it twice? Not as far as we can tell. From the information that's available, once you've had COVID-19, you're immune. Um, and there is also very little information or evidence that I've seen about mutation at this, at this point in time. And then what about uh, should we all be just eating hot food and not cold food? Because that's where bacteria breeds and <laughs> another um, myth. <laughs> I, I think that um, we just need to be sensible. I think um, if you're, you know, getting regular takeaway from your takeaway shop and it's always been healthy and clean and you've never had any problems with it and they're washing their hands and they're cleaning benches, I see absolutely no reason why that can't continue. And with food that you've bought from the greengrocers is the same, sensible, uh, washing your food before you eat it. If you're having a salad, just make sure the greens are all clean and you've given them a good rinse. But I don't really think we need to go to just eating, you know, hot food. Hot food. Okay, good to know. And then what are the tips that you give your own family about COVID-19 in terms of prevention and, and, and moving forward and feeling comfortable in our new normal? I tell my boys to wash their hands and... I, wash, I tell them to wash their hands before breakfast, lunch and dinner. If we've been out um, and the, we go to the dog beach a lot, so they touch a lot of dogs and they need to wash their hands because they've touched the dogs. Yeah. There are lots of, I think, common things that we need to do. The social distancing is a little bit unusual. It's really hard to see a really good friend that you want to hug yeah. and you can't and you have to stand back and just say, well, I feel fine, but, you know, I could develop a fever tomorrow and I don't want to give COVID-19 to a good friend. So you stand back and you wave and you do the right thing. 
by your by your family and by your community. Yes, that's right. And then you can't get it from your pets no. or from an animal? Not as far as we know, oh, unless that pet is a pangolin maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so the thought that it came from a bat or it's these poor bats, I feel sorry for these poor bats that have really <laughs> copped it, but um, we can't get it from it. We can't give it from to an animal or we not, can't? Not as far as we know, no. Not as far no, as we they've know. They've done um, a little bit of testing on domestic dogs and they don't seem to have the right um, makeup to get COVID-19. Okay, so from what I'm understanding, if we stick to the very common sense instruction and, and, and guidance we're getting, then we, we can continue to get these positive results of hopefully the flattening of the curve and, and uh, all getting healthy and well. Yes, and I would I would really um, encourage people to go to reputable sites for information. The WA Health Department do have updates daily. Um, there's a lot of information on that website, and most questions can very easily be answered by reading that, which is up to date and current. Um, and for broader information, the World Health Organization and the CDC in America also have very up-to-date information. And I would strongly suggest against following um, an Instagram or Twitter feed from somebody whose opinion you're listening to. Mm. Um, you really need to be uh, mindful of where the information's coming from and the anxiety in the community is high anyway. And I think you need to go back to very simple principles that most people are doing the right thing with social distancing and hand washing and we need to look after each other. And I think that's um, the anxiety is I always, I'm worrying about the children. I think, you know, this is... Um, you know, for parents to have to explain it. You know, what would what have you told your own children? Well, my children have grown up in a household where I discuss infectious diseases every day because of what I do. So they're very relaxed, actually. And they, they're not complacent, but they understand the principles. And you can't have bugs simply jump at you um, if you are not close enough for that to happen. And if you wash your hands, they're, they're invisible, of course, but if you do it very, very well, then mm. you don't get it. And in fact, I have been working in infectious diseases for 15 years and I don't recall ever having an infection in my line of work. So it's really going back to the basics of good hygiene, personal hygiene, yes. and, and also keeping to the social distancing, all the messages that we're being told, but really adhering to them. Yes. Yeah. And um, and your website is fabulous too, because you've got some great content on that. So I'm going to be making sure that your link is on there um, when we upload this podcast, because you've got a fantastic uh, website full of excellent quality content for people to reach out to. And um, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. A big thank you to St John of God Hospital Subiaco and Dr Arellano for supporting this very special episode of MediTalk. And to learn more about Dr. Arellano, visit sjog.org.au. If you feel this podcast episode can help a friend or a family member, please share, as sharing knowledge empowers our lives and the lives of others. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please take a minute to write a quick review on Apple Podcasts. 
To listen to more episodes of Meditalk, visit meditalk.com.au and if you have any medical conditions you would like to learn more about, please send me an email via danae at meditalk.com.au. Stay well and thank you for listening.